Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and this is the 126th program in this series. In the previous message, I was in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. This was when Jesus resurrected from the dead. What happened was that the Roman soldiers had secured the tomb. We know this from the other Gospels. And they were there in order to make sure that the disciples, or anyone else for that matter, would come and take Jesus away. Now, Jesus, of course, resurrected from the dead anyway. And when Mary came to the tomb on Sunday morning, she discovered that the tomb was empty. He wasn't there. It appears that the Roman soldiers were not there. She went and she told the disciples, and then we have Peter, and it was probably John himself, who then went and looked at the tomb themselves. And when they saw that Jesus was not there, all they could do, of course, was just go home, because there was nothing they could do. Now, Mary stayed a little while, and then she encountered the two angels. She encountered Jesus, who she at first thought was maybe the gardener, And she asked him, where was Jesus? Where was the body of Jesus? And then, of course, Jesus revealed himself to her in a way that it was clear that he was resurrected from the dead and he was right there in her presence. He told her not to hang on to him because he was on his way to the kingdom of heaven. And he told her to go and tell the disciples that he was going to ascend to the Father to their God, and in that way he was telling them that everything's just fine. Now this day is the Feast of First Fruits, and there were some ceremonies that were going to take place at the temple in order to observe the festival of First Fruits. But this was also the day that everybody would be heading back home. The seventh day Sabbath is over. They were there for that Sabbath, and they were there for the Sabbath of the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They had been there since Passover. They had been there for a while, and so people were going to start heading home. There would be a lot of people out and about, a lot of people getting ready to travel, a lot of people on the roads. But it appears that the disciples didn't go anywhere. Continuing into John chapter 20, verse 19, it says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, When the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, before I get to what Jesus said, let's consider the fact that they are shut in some room, some place. They didn't leave town. They are all together, and they are effectively hiding out. That's what appears to be the case With this kind of a description, they were just kind of hiding out because they were afraid. They were assembled together for fear of the Jews. 
They were behind closed doors, hiding out someplace. And why would they be afraid? What was there to be afraid of? Well, Jesus was missing. That was something to definitely be concerned about, because who is going to take the blame for Jesus missing? The Romans are not going to take the blame. The soldiers would have been severely punished for their failure to secure the tomb. The religious leaders are not going to claim responsibility for Jesus being missing because Jesus said that he would resurrect from the dead on this day. And so, if they cannot produce the body of Jesus, then there is going to be some evidence to show that Jesus really did resurrect from the dead. And so, the claim that the religious leaders were going to try to assert was that the disciples took the body of Jesus somehow. They overcame the Roman soldiers and took the body of Jesus. Why? So they could go around and claim that Jesus resurrected from the dead because they would go and hide the body someplace. So if this was going to be the way that blame would be placed, if the disciples were going to be blamed for Jesus's absence, well, there could be some serious problems. There could be some serious trouble. The Jews might go and seize them and demand that they give up the body of Jesus, but they don't have the body of Jesus, and so they could not do what would be asked of them if that's what would happen. There was nothing that they could do if they were accused of seizing the body of Jesus in order to pretend that Jesus resurrected from the dead. They would not be able to present the body of Jesus because they didn't have him in order to show that he didn't really resurrect from the dead. Instead, they just took the body so that this could be promoted. But they didn't have the body, and so all that they could say was that Jesus really did resurrect from the dead. But this wouldn't be helpful, not with the people who just found a way to extort the Romans into murdering Jesus. So now the disciples could find themselves in a similar situation, where the Romans could potentially be extorted into murdering them because they apparently are trying to continue the propagation of sedition by claiming that Jesus resurrected from the dead, and they could not prove otherwise because, of course, they don't have the body of Jesus in order to prove. That they had nothing to do with this, except, of course, that they apparently took the body of Jesus. But this could be resolved quickly if they would just give it back. But they don't have him, and so all they can do is sit there, hidden behind closed doors, terrified, not knowing what is going to happen. And are they going to leave and try to get out of town? You're not going to be able to do that with all of the people in the surrounding area on the roads. They're all heading home themselves. There are way too many people around, especially around the temple area and in the marketplace. People are going to be everywhere on this day. They've just had two Sabbath days. They're going to be out and active, and so the disciples are hiding out here, and they're not going to leave any time soon. That's for sure. And so, under these conditions, Jesus shows up. He just appears right there in the midst of them. Again, in verse nineteen, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, "Peace be with you." Now, this would be a good start because obviously they're all gathered together, terrified. They're all afraid of what might happen, and now Jesus appears in the midst of them, 
this could give them some other reasons to be afraid as to why and how this happened. But Jesus apparently speaks to them right away and he says, peace be with you. He wants them to experience some peace, especially in the midst of the circumstances that they are in right now. In verse 20, Jesus goes on and he says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They were glad because it really was him. They could see by his hands and by his side that he definitely was injured. They could see the injuries that resulted from the crucifixion and the thrust of the spear into his side to ensure that he was dead. But now he has appeared and he is definitely alive and he shows them it really is him. It really is. So they were very excited to see him because, of course, what they were afraid of, they would not have to be afraid of now because if they were going to be attacked for the claim that Jesus resurrected from the dead, well, there he is. He's right here. You can see he really did. We don't have the body of Jesus, but you can see that his body is apparently right here accessible. This is something that would relieve their concerns quickly. So then in verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Well, now, this is not necessarily going to inspire a sense of peace right away. As the Father sent you, look what happened to you. Look at your hands. Look at your side. Look at all that you went through. This is what happened to you as God sent you. Now you're going to send us? What does that mean? Does that mean that we are now going to be sent out into the world, out amongst these people, and we're going to end up just like you? And you want us to have some sense of peace about this? Is that what you're thinking? Really? I don't think that that's what he had in mind. If you take a look at what happened afterwards, as was recorded in the book of Acts, you'll see that they did not live their lives in such a way that it was an exact duplicate or duplication of the ministry of Jesus. They had their own lives that they lived. The Lord did guide them and direct them, and they were participating in the work of God, but it was not the same as the work that Jesus did. The work that the disciples did was unique to the disciples, to each one of them. And so what does it mean to say that as the Father sent Jesus, so also Jesus sends them? Well, it has to be a general description. It can't be a detailed description. It's a general description to say that as God sent Jesus out into the world to interact with the world, so also he is now sending them out of this room that they are hiding in to go out into the world and interact with the world. And of course, what are they going to do? They're going to tell the truth. That's what they're going to do. They're going to go out and they're going to tell people the truth, just as God sent Jesus to go and tell the truth. So now Jesus is telling them to go out and tell the truth. And what would he like them to tell the people? Well, you keep reading. And he does mention a little of this. But in verse 22, it says, 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, in reading this translation of him breathing on them, it gives the impression that in verse 22, the disciples received the Holy Spirit through him breathing on them. That's what this translation expresses. However, a much better rendition of this verse to translate this much more accurately from the language that it was written in, it was written in Greek, a much better translation of this would say that he took a deep breath. Not that he breathed on them and the Holy Spirit then went upon them from his mouth. It says that he took a deep breath. Sometimes there are some discrepancies in the scriptures that do result in some significant adjustments, and this is one of them. It just so happens that this is one of those few scriptures that the translation was very poor and can lead to a lot of confusing ideas. But that's really what it says. It says that he took a deep breath and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, why would he even take a deep breath? Why would that be recorded? What would that represent? Well, you have to remember that this is now the solution to the problem that caused the fall of humanity to begin with. This was a special moment. The resurrection has now happened. There is nothing to do but to wait until the Feast of Pentecost, which is when the Holy Spirit came to dwell within the disciples. But this is the solution to a problem that began way back in the Garden of Eden. It had been several thousand years, about 4,000 years from what we can tell, since this problem got started. And now finally, after thousands and thousands of years, God has finally provided a solution for this problem. And the solution is possible because of his resurrection. This is the way that he decided to present the Holy Spirit to humanity. And he has been through so much since then. God had to endure all of those people all the way up until he decided to flood the earth with the flood of Noah. And then after that, there was some more time that went by as people struggled with recognizing what the law is and the differences between good and evil. And then he was eventually able to establish a relationship with one guy, Abraham. And then through Abraham, there was the children of Israel. And he finally exposed himself in a public way through the plagues that he executed upon the gods of Egypt in order to set the Israelites free. You know, the Lord has really been through a lot over these several thousand years. And so then the nation of Israel was established, and then the people wanted a king. They started with Saul, and then they got King David, and then a bunch of kings after that. There was the Assyrian captivity of ten of the tribes, really nine and a half, and they were all lost and assimilated to the north. And then came the Babylonian captivity and all the problems related to that. The people eventually returned and now a new society is going to be built up and hundreds of years go by and the Maccabean Wars happen in the middle of those. And then finally, 
God shows up personally as the Lord Jesus conducts his ministry. He's murdered. He now resurrects from the dead. He has really been through a lot in order to get to this point when he can finally say the Holy Spirit is coming, receive him when he gets here. So what does he do? He takes a deep breath, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you take a moment and just take a deep breath after all that he has been through? Of course, he's going to take a moment and just take a deep breath just before he says, now, finally, you can receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit will come at the next festival, which is recognized as the Feast of Weeks, also known as Pentecost. So, of course, he's going to take a deep breath. And that's what it says in verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them more correctly, it would say, and he took a deep breath and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And this, again, is another translational challenge. And there are a lot of people who really want to believe that the disciples were then given the authority to decide who was going to be forgiven and who was not going to be forgiven. And this is a belief that's been perpetuated for many centuries now, about 2,000 years, mainly through the Catholic Church, who takes the position that they are now the ones who have the authority given to them by these disciples so that they get to decide who is going to be forgiven and who isn't going to be forgiven. And this is important for you to be aware of because there are a lot of people in the world who are a part of this particular church. And to be a part of this church, you pretty much have to believe this and a lot of other things that they teach in order to be recognized as being a part of this church. I, of course, I don't see that here at all. I do not see that that is what Jesus was intending to say. From what I can tell, he was sending them out into the world to tell the truth. That's what he says in verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Send them to do what? To tell the truth. And what is the truth? That the sin issue is over that people are forgiven because of what Jesus did through the crucifixion. Now, of course, it's unlikely that they would have understood what this meant at this time. This is something that the Lord would have to reveal to them in the coming weeks, in the coming months, as they would discover and grow to understand the implications of what he really did, why he did what he did, and why the Holy Spirit would remain within a person once the Holy Spirit dwells within them and they are resurrected from the dead and made into a child of God. There was definitely some time involved before the disciples would be exposed to that kind of understanding. But in the meantime, they could go forward and say that people were forgiven in this sense because of the sacrificial offering of the Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus, who in effect resolved the sin issue between God and humanity. But if they do not tell people about the forgiveness that God has already given, then it's as if they have not been forgiven. And so that to me is a better understanding of verse 23 
that if you don't tell people that they are forgiven, it will be as if they are not forgiven. Now, this is certainly not reserved just to the point of telling people about the forgiveness of sins or not. It's not just reserved for that, because there are a lot of people who will tell you and tell others that Jesus died for their sins. In this day and age, it appears that there is an abundance of people who are out and about telling people that God does not hold their sins against them anymore, that Jesus provided for the forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future. The problem is, is that it doesn't usually take very long before they follow it up with, oh, but God still holds your sins against you, and you have to confess your sins, or you're going to lose fellowship with God, he's definitely going to find some way to hold it against you. You may very well still be saved, or at least maybe just for now, but we don't know how this is going to look if you keep doing this sin. You know, God might just get tired of it after a while and say, you know what, I'm just not going to forgive you anymore. There are a lot of different beliefs out there concerning the subject of forgiveness. And unfortunately, the overwhelming majority of these beliefs are ways of negating or rejecting the truth of forgiveness. And there are, of course, a lot of reasons why people do that. I did produce a series on the subject of forgiveness. I'm not going to try to duplicate that series in this message or to try to squeeze it into the following messages. I'm just going to refer you to those programs that you can listen to for free through the Living God Ministries radio archive. Forgiveness is a big subject, but this is when Jesus speaks of it. He speaks of it right here in verse 23, that we are to go out into the world and let people know that God does not hold their sins against them anymore because of what he did. This appears to be the first thing that Jesus tells his disciples to go and do. Get out there and tell people that the sin issue has finally come to an end and that the Holy Spirit is coming. Later on, the people would be able to make the connection and understand that the forgiveness of sins was necessary so that the Holy Spirit would not depart from within them when they sinned. That was what caused the death of humanity to begin with. When Adam and Eve sinned, they died. The Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit, that was breathed within them, left them, and they were spiritually dead. Now the sin issue has been resolved, and so when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within a person... Because there is no sin left unforgiven, there will be no sin that will cause the Holy Spirit to depart from anyone ever again. Therefore, when they are made alive, they are made alive eternally. The life that they will now have will be an eternal life that they will be able to experience right now and today, or at least at this time when this happened. And it would carry them on into eternity even after they physically died. But now going back to verse 23, the verb that is used here that is improperly translated is a verb tense used by the writer to describe a completed action that occurred in the past, but which produced a state of being or a result that exists in the present. And so a much better rendition of verse 23 would be to say, if you have forgiven the sins of any, they have already been forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they have already been retained. So they would be acknowledging 
that the sin issue has come to an end, and they would be notifying people that the sin issue has come to an end. But Jesus certainly did not give them the authority to decide who would be forgiven or not. He is expressing to them their role in communicating the accomplished fact of forgiveness to others so that they can embrace the truth and receive the Holy Spirit and be saved. And I will continue into verse 24 about Thomas in the next program. Thank you for listening. This is the 126th program in the verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. In this program, I was in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. I spent some time speaking about the disciples hiding out because they were afraid of what the Jews might do to blame them for the body of Jesus being missing. The disciples were definitely at risk because the body of Jesus was not available. Jesus resurrected from the dead. The disciples could not prove that they did not have the body, and they could not present the body in order to protect themselves from what the Jews could do in order to extort the Romans into murdering the disciples for continuing the sedition just as they extorted the Romans into murdering Jesus. I explained that Jesus spoke to them about his interest that they have peace. However, this would be quite a challenge when he spoke with them about sending them into the world just as the Father had sent him into the world. And I explained that they could be faced with a lot of risk if they were to go into the world just as Jesus did because they might end up just as Jesus ended up. But I explained that in the book of Acts, we can see that the disciples did live their own individual, unique lives as God sent them into the world to proclaim the truth. In this program, I also explained the translational challenges that are found in verse 21 and 23. That in verse 21, Jesus took a deep breath, and I explained why this was a significant moment for God. And in verse 23, I explained that the verb is in the past tense to describe something that was accomplished previously and would produce a current state or result that would exist in the present. And I will continue in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net